Well, I'd like to ask you to take your Bible with me and turn to Matthew chapter 12. This will be the last time that we're in Matthew 12. Uh, we've been in it for about five sermons or so, but we're going to close out this great chapter by looking at verses 38 to 50 this morning. We've, again, taken a bit of time to, to walk through it, but it's a really significant chapter within the book as a whole. Throughout it, Jesus has been dealing with the Pharisees who were in the process and certainly uh, even clinched the deal as far as denying Jesus as their Messiah. They had completely refused to believe in Christ. And so Jesus uh, is very clearly here being revealed as the Messiah, yet they are suppressing it. They're denying it. They're refusing to believe in Him as the one who has come to be their Messiah. And so Jesus, throughout this passage, He's been teaching really with great authority. His kingdom had come. His, his kingdom was, was present. He Himself is presenting Himself as the King of it. And in the midst of all of it, Pharisees were refusing to believe that Jesus was the Messiah King. The one that had been long foretold about. Yet in spite of, in spite of their refusal to believe in Jesus as their Messiah, He, he firmly holds His ground. He, he declares uh, himself early in the ch- in, earlier in the chapter, he declares himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. He, he was the Lord of the Sabbath. That is saying a lot, especially when you consider the Jews and what they believed and what they thought, particularly pertaining to the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, I am the Lord of this special day, this day that you uh, separate yourself for holy purposes. But Jesus continues healing people. He confounds these Pharisees with his teaching. And the Pharisees realize that despite all of their desperate attempts, all of their tries to bring Jesus down in all the many ways that they try, they are unable to detract from Him, so they determine that they need to destroy Him. Right? So they, they couldn't pull away from Him. They couldn't, they couldn't deny what He was doing. They tried. They, they tried and failed, really. But they could not do it, and so they planned to destroy Him. Eventually, the Pharisees, in such desperation, they, they try to pin wickedness upon Jesus. They begin to say that Jesus' works are are not of the Holy Spirit, they're not of God, but in fact Jesus' works, the things that He is doing, all in their presence, they're actually the work of the devil. So Jesus heals that blind and that mute man, the man who had the, the demon within him, and they say, the Pharisees say, that He does this with the power of the devil. And so the last couple of weeks we've been looking how ridiculous it is to say that Jesus would with the power of Satan, be casting out demons and how illogical that would be for Satan to work against himself in that way. So Jesus has been laboring through Matthew 12 to teach and to show these Pharisees the truth. And all the while, they were continuing to reject him, continuing to figure out how they could destroy him, conspiring against him. And when you think about these Pharisees, how exhausting it must have been to be a Pharisee, right? Look through Matthew 12, and just all that they're doing, all that they're saying. How ex- exhausting would it be to be one of these Pharisees, always striving for perfection, always striving to, to be better and better, but not in the power of God, in their own strength, making themselves look as good as they can, adding all of these moral things to themselves, lifting themselves up. How exhausting it must have been to live in this kind of way. There was actually an article posted just yesterday that I uh, was able to see. It's called, What Do Pharisees Do? And it was just a a quick summary with uh, just quick statements with a few verses of what Pharisees do. And some of them were even contained within our passage of Matthew 12 and beyond. But listen to a few of these. Pharisees leap to unnecessary and often absurd conclusions in order to see those they oppose in the worst light. 
Pharisees watch in order to nitpick. Pharisees are always looking to take offense. Pharisees seek to win with malicious tests. Pharisees grumble. What an exhausting life. How do you have spiritual rest within your soul in this life when you're living in this kind of pharisaical way? They were spending all of their time focusing on these areas. Always trying to be perfect. Always trying to make sure other people are being perfect along with them. Always trying to, to stick it to Jesus. Grumbling. Thinking the worst of everyone and, and, and the best of themselves. This is what the state of the Pharisees was that, that Jesus was dealing so thoroughly with. They were so desperate. and They were in that desperate need of, of, of Jesus, really. But they, yet they were denying him. They were in desperate need of of the Messiah who stood in Matthew chapter 11. And he said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. The Pharisees were weary and heavy laden, constantly exhausting themselves to make themselves more and more pure. They didn't have the power of God, but doing it in their own power. They were so spiritually tired. Their works of righteousness were difficult to maintain. They were constantly looking to see what others were doing. They were always thinking of new ways to present themselves as holy and looking to get others to follow in their footsteps. So they were constantly looking to add more and more morality to their lives without the proper reflection in their heart, that heart after God. So all of it really was a a works righteousness, right? Of course, we know uh, Ephesians 2, it's not a works of Works that we do, it's according to his mercy that they saved us. But to them, it was all about the works. It was all that they could do. It was all within their self-righteousness. What they could do to garner favor with God in their own strength. But this morning, Jesus is just going to continue coming at these Pharisees. And what he ends up showing the scribes and Pharisees and us this morning is that thinking this way, that thinking this way is merely outward morality. To think like a Pharisee is simply just an outward structure that we build, a wall that we build around ourselves. That's what morality is if it's not from the proper heart. It's really a a cleaned up outside with an impure inside. So these Pharisees may have changed on the outside. They may have assembled themselves together quite nicely and they looked really good. But in all reality, they are simply outwardly moral and inwardly Desperate, and that's what I want to talk to you about this morning: being outwardly moral, opposed to being having an inward relationship. Look with me at Matthew chapter twelve, beginning in verse thirty-eight. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, "Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you." But he answered them, "An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish." So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And then it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brother stood outside, asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, and, or excuse me, is my brother and sister and mother. So as we've been going throughout this book, we've seen Jesus interact with these Pharisees, and it's almost like they are the energizer bunnies, right? You just keep on coming after him. They never stop. We mentioned that they're tired spiritually, but it almost seems like physically they just keep coming. They just don't stop. It's like the Russians when you're in a war with the Russians. They just throw people at you constantly all over and over and over again. And this is what's going on here. The Pharisees never stop coming after Jesus. They're tireless in their pursuit of him. Yet, As we can easily see, they're pursuing him not for the right reasons, right? possible to, to pursue Christ for the right reasons, but it's possible to, pro, to follow after him or to pursue him for the wrong reasons. And that's what the Pharisees were doing, particularly in this passage. They come to him yet again, and what they are looking for is a sign. Okay? They're looking for some sort of miracle from Jesus. And if I'm Jesus, I'm thinking to myself, what more do you want? How many more signs do I have to do for you to, to finally see, to, to finally see the truth about who I am? How many signs and, and miracles and wonders had they seen from Jesus already? How many works had they already seen and heard about? How many times had he healed somebody and they had either seen it or heard about it and yet did nothing about it? And yet here they are. They come to him asking for more. They want to see another sign. Teacher, show us a sign. But I think what is clear is that they aren't asking for a sign in order to help somebody. They're not saying, oh, here's somebody. Please perform a sign for this person. Do a miracle upon this person. They're not doing it in order to help somebody. They were asking for a sign from him in order to build their case that Jesus is from the devil. They're looking for some kind of sign like they did before to prove that he is working with or for the devil. They weren't asking for a sign because they believed in him. They weren't asking for a sign because they wanted to see some kind of greatness from him so they could worship him and and, and magnify him and say how great he is as a result of the sign. They were asking for a sign to prove that Jesus needed to be destroyed. They were trying to pin more and more things against him, so they come to him asking, show us a sign. They're trying to get him into the grave as fast as they can, and they were willing to do anything possible in order to make it happen. But the problem was that they were focused on getting a sign to accuse him instead of believing and trusting in what had already been revealed to them. They refused to believe all that had been revealed to them already and asked for more. So in spite of everything that they had seen throughout even Matthew chapter 12 and all that happened before, in spite of all of that, they were still asking for more. They wouldn't believe what they had seen and they were asking for some more. And I think a lot of times we do the same exact thing. That we want signs, right? Lord, just, just give me a sign, right? Write it in the sky somehow. Let me walk out, and in my front yard, there's a big script that just tells me what I'm supposed to do. We want signs. We, we like to think that God is going to reveal some sort of special message for us or a confirmation that what he has already said is true instead of simply trusting in what has already been revealed, specifically what we find in the Bible, I'm a bit embarrassed to admit it, but when I was in junior high and high school, played a lot of basketball, and so I'd be out shooting around or whatever, and so I'd be taking my practice shots and say, Lord, if you want me to do such and such, let this go in. I shoot, well, if I miss it, does that mean that God didn't want me to do that? Lord, if you want me to like this girl, let this go in. And of course, that never went in until I got to college. But, but anyway, that, we all kind of do that, don't we? We all want God to 
to show us in some kind of way that he is who he has already declared himself to be within God's word. And so what I was asking for when I was shooting that basketball is I was asking God for some kind of sign. I wanted some kind of confirmation from God about his will for my life. I wanted that verification that my choices were what he wanted for me. And there are times when we really want a sign to, or, or something like that to prove that God is God or to prove that he wants us to do something good and right. But the Pharisees wanted the sign for the complete opposite. They wanted a sign to prove that he wasn't good. And that he wasn't right. That he wasn't who he said that he was. So Jesus doesn't give them a sign. He doesn't pull somebody over and say, okay, let me, let me go ahead and do that. No, he doesn't do it at all. He doesn't fall into that trap. But what he does tell them is that there's a sign that is going to be coming. And it's called the sign of Jonah. Look at verse 39. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Okay, so you remember Jonah from nothing else, your Sunday school class growing up. Maybe you memorize some songs to go along with the story of Jonah. But if you remember, God came to Jonah and he told him, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to cry out against the great sins of this city, this great city really, of Nineveh. Jonah says, of course, no. And he decides that he's going to go the other way. He travels the opposite way from Nineveh, not toward it. But while he is on the ship, of course, God sends this great storm. And so the ship is rocking along in the sea. All the men of the ship, they're throwing the cargo out. You can imagine just trying to lighten the load of the ship, making things easier to manage. Uh, And they're all praying to their gods, the passages say doing whatever it takes to survive. Eventually, Jonah is found on the ship. He realizes the situation. And what does he tell all of the men on the ship? He says, throw me overboard and it'll be fine. Throw me overboard and this is all going to stop. Of course, they're reluctant to do that. They don't want to kill this guy for no reason. But eventually they do it and they take Jonah and throw him over into the ocean. And so as Jonah is sinking in that ocean, what happens to him? What happens to Jonah? That's right. How long is he in the fish? He's in the fish for three days. So Jesus, or or, or excuse me, and Jesus says, so will it be with the Son of Man. So as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and and three nights, so will it be with the Son of Man. Jesus is going to be in the belly of the earth for three days and for three nights. Jesus is foretelling the fact that he is going to be in the ground just as Jonah was in the fish. So Jesus is very clearly prophesying what is going to happen to him. This is important. This is significant. Jesus knows what's coming. We're not going to see it until chapter 27 or so, but Jesus knows what is coming. He knows why he came to earth. He knows he is going to die. He knows he is going to be buried. Yet he knows that he's going to rise again. And these Pharisees, this wicked and adulterous generation, this brood of vipers, would receive the sign of Jonah. A sign that could never be construed as of the devil, right? They were looking for a sign, something to pin him, something to drag him down with. And they would receive the sign of Jonah. A sign that could only ever be interpreted as the power of God, Jesus being placed in the tomb for three days and caused to come back alive. So just as Jonah was buried in the fish, Jesus would be buried in the tomb. So you want to see a sign, Pharisees. A sign is going to come, the sign of Jonah. When Jonah finally got to the people of Nineveh, you remember that he began preaching and only took a few words and the entire city began 
to repent. And certainly part of his testimony would have been the fact that he had been in the belly of the fish. Right? You can imagine the sight of Jonah after he gets out of this fish. Right? I mean, he looked more than shipwrecked, certainly. I mean, what would somebody look like after being in the belly of a fish for a few days, coming out and walk? I mean, he kind of looked like a zombie walking into Nineveh, preaching this message of repentance to them. And so this ragtag prophet walks into Nineveh preaching this message of repentance. And what happens? The whole entire city repents. This massive city, this wicked city, all of them repent in sackcloth and ashes. Jonah's resurrection from the fish would have been a sign or a proof to the people of Nineveh that Yahweh is the one true God. And in the same way, Jesus would spend three days in the tomb and his deliverance from that tomb would serve as a sign for millions So this sign of Jonah is really a gospel sign. This whole massive city of Nineveh uh, repented in the sackcloth and ashes upon hearing his message. And Jesus says that these people of Nineveh, these ones who repented and, and trusted in Yahweh, they're going to rise up at the judgment one day and they're going to condemn the evil and wicked generation that Jesus is speaking with. Look at verse 41. The men of Nineveh, will rise up at the judgment with this generation. And what are they going to do? They're going to condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. So the formerly wicked people of Nineveh are going to rise up and condemn the currently wicked generation that Jesus is speaking to. But very closely related to this, and we can't miss this. Look at verse 42. Closely related here is the queen of the south. She will rise up at the judgment with this generation. And what is she going to do? She is also going to condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So what are the men of Nineveh going to do at the judgment? They're going to rise up and they're going to condemn this evil generation. What is the queen from the south going to do? She is going to rise up and she is going to condemn this wicked generation. Now, what is significant or what is the connection between the men of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba or the queen of the south? They're all Gentiles. The evil generation that Jesus is speaking to are God's people, right? Ethnically, they are God's people. Yet here, these are these men of Nineveh are Gentiles. The queen of Sheba that came up and visited Solomon and saw all of his wisdom and all of his gold and all things that he had in his kingdom. She was also a Gentile. And so they will rise up together at the judgment and they will condemn this evil generation. But these verses show us more than the condemnation of this wicked generation. They also show us and magnify Christ. They show his greatness to us. These two men from the Old Testament that Jesus brings up, Jonah and Solomon, they serve to magnify Christ. He says in verse 41, look down there, something greater than Jonah is here. Look at verse 42, something greater than Solomon is here. So there is a greater prophet than Jonah who is standing among this evil and wicked generation. There was a greater king than Solomon who is standing among this wicked generation. Back in verse 6, Jesus says, something greater than the temple is here, and it was Christ. So Matthew 12, really, in spite of all of this wickedness and this evil generation and all the condemnation that is going on, Matthew chapter 12 serves to exalt Christ. Lift him up to raise him and to show how much better he is than all. So as this polluted generation is crumbling all around him, he is being lifted. He is being magnified. He is being shown as the central piece here. That he is above 
all the systems of the Old Testament. He is the true and the better temple. He is the true and better king. He is the true and better prophet. He is a true and better priest. He is better. Is this not what the book of Hebrews is all about? Jesus is better than the angels. He is better than Moses. He is better than Melchizedek. He is superior to the high priest. He is the better and greater prophet, far above Jonah. He is the better and greater king, far above Solomon. These verses serve to elevate Christ. But the sign of Jonah was shown. Jesus was taken. He was, of course, killed. He was placed in the tomb. And all seemed bleak and lost. His disciples end up running away from him. His mother is pierced with pain. And the demons and Satan and this wicked generation around him were thrilled at his destruction. But then the greatest part of the story happens, right? Where Jesus does not stay dead. Where he comes out of the tomb. The fish did not hold Jonah for very long, and the tomb could not hold Jesus for very long. In spite of all of that happens to him in this narrative, we know how the end turns out. It, it turns out with an empty grave, right? And, and a risen and ascended Lord who is seated at the right hand of his Father. This is the, the kind of message that we now take to the nations. This is the sign that we bring to them. We bring to them the sign of Jonah. We bring to them the one who fulfilled all of that in Christ. That he came and he died and he was buried and he rose again. This is the message we take to the nations. That although we ourselves could be absolutely summed up as a wicked and an evil and adulterous generation, the truths of Christ can and do pierce through the hardest hearts. This is the kind of message the Pharisees needed to hear. This is the sign that they would eventually see and Lord willing even believe in. But the irony is that this generation that Jesus calls wicked and evil, it was incredibly hard, yet it was impeccably moral. I mean, think about it. The Pharisees, he's standing there and he's calling them evil. He's calling them wicked. He's calling them spiritually adulterous. That they had adulterated against their God. Yet we know that the Pharisees were impeccably moral. How can, how can that exist? How can he be called evil, but yet also be totally and very, very moral? From the outward appearances, they were. They were incredible people. They followed hard after the law of God, yet their hearts were far from him. You and I usually make the assumption that if somebody is moral, that they're going to be more soft to the gospel. While somebody who is immoral is going to be more hard to the gospel, yet that is often not the case. A moral person has a lot more to trust in, in and of themselves. And this is the state of the Pharisees. They trusted in themselves. They trusted in their own made morality. And Jesus is going to illustrate the problem of this kind of outward morality to these scribes and Pharisees with an illustration about a demon. Look at verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. Now, of course, we know that that an unclean spirit is a, a... fallen angel. It is a a demon. It is impure. So an unclean spirit following and pursuing after its leader, devil, is what Jesus is talking about here. And apparently in this illustration, this demon has has been either cast out of a person or, or maybe he leaves on his own and after it passes through these dry and these waterless places, he, he doesn't find rest. And so he decides that he's going to go back to the person after not being able to find rest. And so he goes back to the original person that he was in. Look at verse 44. Then it says, then the demon says, I will return to my house, that, that original person he was in, from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, 
and put in order. So this demon decides that he's going to go back to the person that he had originally left. And when he gets to the person, he sees that the the life of the person has been cleaned up. He sees that the mess that he made has now been rearranged. We have biblical evidence for this in Mark. When Jesus pulls the legion out of a man, he's sitting clothed in his right mind. Right, Things get back to normal. He starts to look more like a normal human being. But this demon leaves this man. He doesn't find rest. He goes back to that man whose house or whose life has been put back into order. So he's cleaned up his act. His life isn't in shambles anymore. He doesn't do the things that he used to do when the demon was within him. But I think the key word in verse 44 here is the word empty. So sure, that the house or the man is clean. Everything has been put into order. Everything has been swept. But on the inside, he's still empty. In other words, from the out, outward perspective, everything's great, good. Right? A, a reform has taken place. People would look at his life and say, hey, he, he's back on track. He's looking good. His life isn't in shambles anymore. From all outward appearance, things are great. The demon left him, and he was able to get his life back together and not be under the impression of a demon. But the word empty indicates just that. That although this man had cleaned up his life after the demon left him, he was still empty. And this is the state of the Pharisees. They were empty. Everything was clean. Everything was put in order. Everything was swept out. On the outside, everything looked like God was evident in their lives. But on the inside, Jesus says, they're empty. Look at verse 45. Then the demon goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. And so even though the life of this man is put back into order, the emptiness within him allows for the demon to come back, along with seven other demons, to fill his life, rendering him worse off than he ever was before. What a vivid illustration this is to show to the Pharisees, who on the outside, they looked great, but on the inside, they were empty of God. They cloaked themselves with their own morality and their own standards and their own rules, but on the inside, they were completely empty of God. Friends, a moral life with an emptiness on the inside yields the same eternal result of an immoral life with emptiness on the inside. And as Christians, or people who profess to be Christians, we need to be totally aware of what our tendency is in this area. We are so prone to having a moral life and thinking that God accepts us based upon that morality. Where we clean things up and we try to make all the right decisions and think to ourselves, surely God must be pleased with me. Surely God must be pleased with me because I raise good kids. Surely God must be pleased with me because I go to church all the time. Surely God must be pleased with me because of how moral I have lived my life. But that is not how it works. God is pleased with what He places into and brings about in our lives. God is pleased with His Son who comes and fills the void within us and causes us to live and to walk as we should. That is what He is pleased with. He is pleased with himself in you and what he brings about within his own life. So let me encourage you to analyze your own life this morning. Does Jesus Christ fill that emptiness, that void within your soul? Or have you simply attached to yourself a Christianized morality that makes everybody think that he is there, yet he is truly not? 
This is the difference between a legalistic Pharisee and a gospel-centered disciple of Jesus. The Pharisee believes that God sees his outward morality, that he is then pleased and will be gracious toward him. That's legalism. That God sees my outward behavior and therefore is pleased with me as a result of my own obedience. But the disciple realizes that it is not in his own ability to outwardly perform that God is pleased with. But what God is pleased with is Christ in him and the works that Christ brings about within his life. There's a big difference between, between the two. You see this in the story of Luke 18 where there's a a tax collector. Jesus tells the story of a tax collector and a Pharisee, and both of them go to the temple in order to pray. And the tax collectors, of course, were always considered totally wicked. They were considered evil, but the Pharisees were considered to be holy. And Jesus says that this Pharisee stood there, and, and, and he prayed to God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I thank you that I'm not unjust. I thank you that I'm not like the extortioners and the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all of I get. In other words, this Pharisee is saying in Luke 18, God, ain't I great? Ain't I wonderful? Praying to God and telling God how great that he is. I'm not like these wicked people. I fast. I give money to the temple. How pleased you must be with me, God. But you can hear the Christian echo in that. But I'm not like the adulterer. I'm not like the unjust. I give money to the church. I pray, I read my Bible, I don't smoke or chew or go with those who do. Surely God must be pleased with me. Yet the tax collector standing afar off wasn't even able to lift his eyes up to heaven. He beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Which one of these men do you think God was pleased with? The Pharisee who stood there and told God how great he was or the tax collector who told God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisee who exalted himself or the tax collector humbled before God. Jesus has clearly separated himself from this wicked and evil generation. And those from this generation who would humble themselves and instead of putting on some kind of moral code, put on Christ, they will have and enjoy the relationship that comes through Christ alone. And although a lot of this chapter has included a lot of real negativity toward the Pharisees. It really closes with a sweet emphasis on those who are brothers and sisters of Christ. Look at verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my brother and my Or here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus was always concerned throughout his life over the will of his Father. He was always about his Father's business. His concern in this life was always to do his Father's will. And here he stands before his disciples and his mom and his siblings are out and they're asking for him to come out to them. And he stretches his arm out to these disciples, these people that are not of his family, at least as his birth goes, but they're his disciples. He says, these, these ones are my brothers. These ones are my sisters. My friends, this is the relationship that fills the void or emptiness that is within us all. Not moralism, not outward reform, not religion as it's defined by the world, but a relationship with the Son of God. This is what Christ is calling for here. 
He's not calling for outward morality. He's calling for an inward relationship where he steps into the void of our hearts and he changes us. He takes permanent residence and he becomes, begins to make us more and more like him. Doesn't everybody want to be like their older brother? Shouldn't we want to be like our older brother Christ? And he brings us about us when he takes residence within our lives. Those who have come to him. Those who are weak and heavy laden and have heard his call have found their rest in their relationship with Christ and he has taken up residence within them. He calls us brothers and he calls us sisters. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, he says he is not even ashamed to do so. Having an older brother changes everything. I never had an older brother, but I was always envious of those who did. But having Christ gives me a good idea of what a real, genuine, good older brother should be. You don't have to be fake with your older brother. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to try to make yourself look good and get yourself into his good graces by your actions. You are already there. He already loves you. He already wants to bring you along and care for you. He loves you. You're his younger sister. You're his younger brother. There is a joy in this relationship where you can even be exposed to him and and all of the impurities of your hearts and the things that you don't want to talk about or deal with, you can expose them to him. They already are exposed to him and he will still love you. Who wouldn't want this kind of relationship? What a joy it is to be a Christian and to not have to depend on our own morality that we pull up by our own strength. But to be able to trust in this relationship that we have with Christ that he has called us to and provided all that is necessary to have. The one who is greater than the prophet Jonah, the one who is greater than the wise king Solomon, he calls you brother. He calls you sister. There is no need to put on a show. He has done everything for you. He has done all of the work. Yours is to rest in him. So friends, is the emptiness in your soul masked by your morality or is the morality in your life and the good works that are brought about are they an evidence of your inward relationship with Christ Father we thank you for the privilege of worshiping you again this morning we thank you for your word and how it is powerful that it is 